Well, good morning, everyone. Well, we are not only starting a new year, but we are starting a new series uh, where we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, really excited about this series. I've been studying the the book of Mark, and it you every so often you get a glimpse of uh, like what your children think or. Uh, uh, or you realize that they're watching you and, and things like that. And the other day as I was studying, I, I overheard Boo Bear, my son, talking to uh, my wife, Shannon. And uh, he, he said, you know what, Mama? Someday I want my faith in Jesus to be so great that I can write my own gospel. <laughs> I was like... Oh, he thinks that I wrote this. And uh, so I did not write the Gospel of Mark. Uh, that was uh, someone uh, prior to uh, me, uh, also a, a, you know, a guy with a wonderful strong name like Mark. But uh, basically, Mark is an interesting guy. A lot of people think he was one of the 12 disciples. He was not. Uh, he was a contemporary of Jesus. He knew Jesus very well, some theologians think that he was probably one of the 72 uh, disciples. He was somebody who's very close, but he wasn't actually one of the 12. Also, uh, the gospel according to Mark is uh, probably the first gospel that was written, and the other ones came afterwards. And so as we journey into this, it, uh, I'm really excited about, about this gospel. It's written specifically um, to... Jew, uh, Jewish Christians who who live in Rome, and uh, that Rome was, you know, a big centralized place uh, where a lot of government was happening and a lot of pomp and circumstance. There was a lot of famous people, a lot of important people. Uh, there was also a whole pantheon of different gods that that people were worshiping. So as he was writing this gospel, he was like saying he was trying to clearly say, look. Jesus was the Son of God. And I always get questions about the graphics and things like that, and out front the banners, Jesus 2010. Uh, You know what, this year we're going to be starting with this gospel and looking at Jesus because he is the centralized figure, obviously, to our faith. And for some of us, uh, maybe we haven't acknowledged or, or haven't determined yet in our own minds, in our own hearts, who he is. For others of us, we've been following Jesus for a long time, but maybe we've just kind of lost our first love. Or maybe for some of us, you know, this will be just a great series to re-remind us of how great Jesus really is. And that's really my heart behind this as we go through the next 14 weeks through the Gospel of Mark all the way up until Easter, uh, and we just walk with his, his life and his ministry, uh, that we uh, look at his death and, and his resurrection, and that by the end of it, that we can look at, at Jesus and, and really see him clearly for who he really is. And that's the, that's the reason that I, I have the public advisory Jesus content kind of warning label 
I was walking through probably like Target or something, and you walk through the music section, and they have all these stickers that say uh, parental advisory, explicit lyrics, you know, on the, on the CDs and things like, like that. And I was like, you know what? The real Jesus is offensive. Like we've done a really good job in the church in the 20th and 21st century of pacifying Jesus to making him less offensive. But the reality is when you study him, he was this wild-eyed savior that there was, he was a catalyzing figure. You know, like you think, you know, you say Sarah Palin and people like immediately part the room and they start throwing things. Like, you know, Jesus is like way more controversial than Sarah Palin could ever dream about being, that he was like a catalyzing figure. And, and you know what? My hope is, as we, as we look at Jesus, the real Jesus, that all of us at some point are going to be offended. Because the reality is, in our own minds, a lot of times, we, we soften the, the edges of Jesus because for our own faith, he becomes more palatable. But when we do that, we're, we're not truly seeing the majesty of who Jesus really is. So we're going to be diving into the Gospel of Mark. So you might as well find where Mark is in your, in your Bible. And uh, we're going to be there uh, for the next 14 weeks. And right out of the, the gate, Mark writes this, here begins the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark is, is making a theological statement right out of the get-go, right here. He's, he's saying something to his Jewish listeners, who, are, who many are now Christians who are followers of Christ, he's, he's making a statement right here. It's like good news. And if you were a first century Jew and you heard this word good news or, or gospel, as soon as you hear that, you would, your mind would say, oh my gosh, the prophecies. The prophecies of, of, of Isaiah and all of these things, you know, that, that this is the good news. So what was the good news? What was the good news to the Israelites? Why were they anticipating this good news, this Messiah to come? And in Isaiah chapter 61, we get a snapshot of what the good news is. Verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that the captives will be released and the prisoners will be set free. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyful, joyous blessing instead of mourning festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his glory. And imagine this, 
as the, as the good news. If you really think about what he is saying, what this prophecy is saying to the Israelites, to the people, or to the hearers of this, that the Lord has come to bring good news to the poor. If you're poor, what, you don't have enough to eat. That, that maybe you don't have enough medicine to, to help your children be healed. That you never have enough and the, there's good news coming that there's going to be enough, that he's going to comfort the brokenhearted. All of us have been brokenhearted in our lives. Broken relationships hurt. And our hearts just hurt. And we just want to cry out. And the good news is that, you know what, when we cry out that God is going to be here to comfort our broken hearts. What if, you know, you were a captive? And, and all of us are captives in some sense. And all of us have put in coping mechanisms in our life to help us cope with this difficult life. And at some point for many of us, those coping mechanisms take control and they become addictions and make us captive to our coping mechanisms. And here the good news is saying, look, you can be released from the the bondage of your addiction. Or those who are mourning that the Lord's favor has come for those of us who are sad. And then also, he gives us a crown of beauty for ashes. I love that, that symbolism, especially right now when it's so cold. My family, we, uh, we love to start uh, fires, not like an arson sense, you know, like fire, cool, you know, watch it burn. Not like that, like in a fireplace with logs. And uh, uh, it's interesting that it's burning and the logs burning and it's all beautiful. And then you come down the, the next morning and it's just a sooty, dirty ash. In fact, Shannon this morning was cleaning out our fireplace and women's lib. And uh, way to go, Katie May. And uh, I, I know I'm going to get, I know I'm bad. You don't have to email me about it. So, so but the, 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 you get, you think about it, you put your hand in that soot, in that mess, it doesn't have any value. And what, what God is saying here is like, look, for many of us, we have lived a life that we have just burnt up our lives and our lives are like that ash and worthless to maybe everyone and everything except to him. He says, you know what? Even that ash of your burned up life, that that is precious to me. You are precious to me and trade that burnt up life and I will give you a beautiful crown. I will crown you as my son and daughter, my prince and my princess. That's the good news that they were looking for. Saying, look, you will have a joyous blessing instead of mourning, a festive praise instead of despair. And then finally, in their righteousness, and this is very uh, true for us in Tallahassee, we can see this. He says, we'll plant us like a mighty oak, a mighty oak. That, you know, you drive down the scene, you see these majestic oaks that have just been standing there for, 
for hundreds of years proclaiming the greatness of God. And he's saying, look, you who are ash, now you can be this mighty oak proclaiming my greatness. And this is the, the good news that the Israelites who had been conquered and they were poor and they were brokenhearted and they were mistreated and all this, that they've been waiting for this Messiah to come. And Mark, right out of the get-go, he be, here begins the good news. Here comes the gospel, that all these things that the prophet was talking about, that they are they have come true in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, this divinely given name. Jesus in the Hebrew is Yeshua. And that means Joshua, which means um, that Yahweh is salvation. So here we are in our trouble. And through this person, Jesus, Yeshua, that, that we will have, usher in the good news. So if you were a first century Jew in Rome and you were reading this gospel, that this very first sentence is saying, oh my gosh, this is an amazing story that I must hear. That all the prophecies are going to become true through this person of Jesus Christ. Now, because of his audience and because of the political structure there, that he doesn't start like other gospels with the birth of Jesus, but he actually starts with Jesus and his entrance. And in the political structure in, in Rome, being having someone who announces you is very, very important. So he starts with this. He starts with someone who is announcing Jesus coming in, that this is important in this story. In verse two, it says, in the book of the prophet Isaiah, God says, look, I am sending my messenger before you and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare a pathway for the Lord's coming. Make a straight road for him. And then he goes on, he says, this messenger was John the Baptist. Now, I absolutely love the Bible for a lot of different reasons, but one is just tells the story how it happened and and the and reveals who God is to us and I think it's very telling how Jesus chooses people I mean excuse me how God chooses different people and there are people that we wouldn't think you know you have God here on earth coming now who would be fit to announce their coming my mind goes to like uh, concerts and stuff. You always have an opening act for, for another act. Like if you have, um, let's see, who's a, who's a big, all right, Black Eyed Peas. Yeah, uh, you got Black Eyed Peas and then who do they open for? Well, who, I mean, you too, right? Just, uh, just recently. So, you know, U2 wouldn't open for the Black Eyed Peas. The, the Black Eyed Peas open for U2, but you wouldn't have like, uh, I don't know, the Wiggles open up for, for U2 or something like that. You, that, you, that you need to have a band that, that is big, big enough, but not bigger than the person that they are announcing who is coming. And, 
you think, okay, so there's going to be this, you know, just amazing, you know, just intellect and, and person like that. But, but God chose the most humble person in a lot of regards, in some ways, not so much. It says, he lived here in the wilderness and he preached that people should be baptized to show that they had turned from their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. People from Jerusalem and all over Judea traveled outside the wilderness, out to the wilderness to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Now listen to this character, John. His clothes were woven from camel hair. He wore a leather belt, very fashionable then. His food was locusts and wild honey. He announced, someone is coming soon who is far greater than I am, so much greater than I am not even worthy to be his slave. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, this this character, John, he's he's very unorthodox. He looks very different. You know, I made a joke, but camel hair and a belt was not hip in the first century either. I mean, this was a bizarre kind of outfit that, that, and so they went out to see him because he looked kind of weird and to hear him. And he was talking about the good news. He was paving away. He was the, he was the person that Isaiah had prophesied about, about this guy in the wilderness proclaiming and making the path, announcing the coming of the Messiah. And people would come and, and in preparation, their baptism was different than the one that we, that we celebrate now. Their baptism was in preparation of the coming Messiah. And they would be baptized as repenting from their sins. Now, I want to just pause there really quick because we're going to be talking about sin, you know, a lot. And there's a lot of different, like you say, sin, and, and, and unfortunately, in the 20th and 21st century, sin had been, has been turned into kind of a weapon. Uh, you, you know, you say you call somebody a sinner, and a lot of people think, oh, you know, I'm just a bad person, and, and, but they don't think that the person who's saying that also is dealing with sin. That we, the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and come short of God's glorious standard. And I think that's an important verse and a clue to kind of give us an understanding of what sin, the theological, biblical understanding of sin, what that really is. If you think of sin as, as uh, if we were playing archery and, and you had a, a, bull, a bullseye, a target, you know, the concentric circles there, and, and I... And I had a bow and arrow and I pulled back one, Audrey, I'd be very nervous at this point because I don't do this and I would very, yeah, put one right through your skull. Uh, uh, And that would be sin. All right, no, uh, uh, I pulled the, not pulled, but I released the arrow and the arrow went for the target and, and for the bullseye but because of maybe wind, well, not like in here, but pretend we were outside, uh, the wind took it or I didn't have enough velocity or I had too much velocity that I missed the bullseye. Well, anything other than hitting the bullseye in this archery sense would 
be sin. You see, God has his perfect standard for us. He has the vision that he has for each and every one of our lives. And when we miss that, and it can be because of external forces like the wind, it could be because we just misjudged it and pulled too high or too hard or not in enough, that, that, you know what, when we pull back and we miss it, that we have missed what God has envisioned for us. No more or no less, but when we miss that vision, then we, we experience less than what God has envisioned for us. And this, this whole repentance go, okay, you know what? I need forgiveness for that because God, I've missed what you had envisioned for me. And then the next step for us is not just to say, oh, well, I'm just going to make a new bullseye around where I hit and that's okay. No, the idea of this whole kind of turning around and repentance is saying, all right, let me pull that arrow. And now I realize that there's different factors happening. There's wind and different velocity and target and everything. And I'm going to adjust these things so I do better next time. And that is the understanding of, 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 of a biblical understanding of what sin is. And that's part of the great news, the good news of, of Jesus Christ is, you know what, God is a God of second chances. And just because you missed that target the first time or you missed the bullseye the first time, God says, look, pull the arrow, let's do it again. Hey, in fact, let me help you. Let me help pull that, that, that back. Uh, I think you have it a little too high or a little too low. And we allow him to control us and to coach us in those things that next time we'll either hit it or get a lot closer to the bullseye. So this is the man who, who is coming and proclaiming Jesus Christ, that, that he is paving the way for him to come and people are, are pulling their arrows out of their target and, and getting prepared for the coming Messiah to come. And in verse nine, it says, one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens split open and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. I am fully pleased with you. Now, you might be sitting here going, wait a second, Mark. You just said that people were being baptized because they were repenting of their sins. So why the heck did Jesus get baptized? Because don't you believe, or if you're like talking to me, don't you believe that Jesus walked a sinless life? And, and I have some ideas on that. First, he was, it was an act of obedience. That, you know what, Jesus wants us to be baptized as a symbolic act that we have repented. And it was an act of obedience in his coming and his calling. In, in his agreement with God's overall plan. Next one is self-identification, which is what we do in our baptism as well. We are identifying ourselves as followers of Christ, that, that, that Jesus was identifying himself as Israelite and part of the chosen people, that this was what he was called and he was accepting his new calling. And that, that's basically what he was doing was this act of saying, you know what? I accept 
this path in which I am going on. You know, this might be hard for us to get our minds around because Jesus was the son of God and he came here specifically to, to die on the cross for our sins. That he actually had a choice not to do that. And we see that several times through the story of Jesus that he made conscious steps saying, you know what? No, knowing where this path is leading me, that I am still gonna go down it. So right after that, after this huge high where, you know, could you imagine? Uh, this has never happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. Like you do something really good. Like I've never like given a talk and, and the heaven split open and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and a voice says, you are my beloved son. I am fully pleased with you. Like that'd be a pretty big day in the Mark McNeese, you know, journal. You know, like I get a big like gold star. You know, I, I hit it that day and everything. I, I, this was a big deal. I mean, this was like Jesus is on target. And I find it interesting that right after that, it says actually immediately, the Holy Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. He was there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was out among the wild animals and angels took care of him. This whole idea of after this huge high, they went out into the wilderness from being it's surrounded by people and being announced as the, as the Messiah who has come. What's the very next scene? He's out in the desert being tempted by Satan. Out with, in, in the wilderness, in, in fasting and, and without water and, and with wild animals around. And it's so often in life, we, we go from these highs, these pinnacle parts of our lives, and, and then there's just complete collapse. There's just this, this, this wilderness in our experience. And this is so important in the life of Jesus as we, we walk through his life and his ministry to understand that Jesus walked the same life that we did. That he wasn't spared from temptation. He wasn't taken away or protected from the wilderness experiences. If anything, he had a heightened experience that we did. The other thing that we do, the other thing that I think is important to note is that, you know what? Being tempted is not sin. A lot of times we feel guilty because we are tempted in doing things. But you know what? The reality is we're tempted all the time. Even Jesus was tempted. And the sin comes in is when we act upon that temptation. So after that desert experience, he goes out. He says, later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee to preach God's good news. At, the la at last, the time has come, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Turn from your sins, there you are, and believe in the good news, the, believe, the good news, the prophecy that we talked about. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew fishing with a net. 
for they were commercial fishermen. Jesus called out to them, come be my disciples and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and went with him. I think it's a very uh, a vivid picture that sometimes we just kind of slough it off as a Bible story. But you know what? These guys were real guys. They had real jobs. And, and Jesus was calling them, and he was calling them to a life of sacrifice, to sacrifice something to follow him. The other really interesting thing is that Jesus, who was a teacher or, or a rabbi, that this was very unusual, that rabbis didn't go out and recruit their A-team, that, that there was a rigorous process that, that people, students, disciples would go through in order to make themselves worthy to be accepted to be a disciple. And Jesus is turning this all upside down and saying, you know what, I, I'm not going to wait for people to try to get good enough to get their act together, to be smart enough or popular enough or powerful enough to be one of my disciples. In fact, quite the opposite, because that's what religion is, that you have to become good enough to become a follower. Quite the opposite, he says, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go to these people. I'm going to go to common people, people who don't have power and influence or, or money, people who are just going through their lives and, and, and doing their own work. And I, as the Son of God, am going to go to them and call them to be my follower. The next group, a little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee, $5 to the next person who names their kid Zebedee. James and John in a boat mending their nets. He called them too, and immediately they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and went with them. Now, this, this call is even greater than the first one, in my understanding. That there's a whole lot of pressure going on here. Number one, we see that there's a family business going on. Zebedee and sons fishing, you know, emporium or whatever, you know, that, that they're doing. They're not, it's not just the family that this business had grown where they could hire people to actually work for them. So you have, you know, this, this family dynamic. On top of that, you know, if... If Zebedee, you know, shouldn't have named his kids James and John, Zebedee should have called James 401 and John K. Because those two kids was Zebedee's retirement program. That he was investing in them, and when he was too old to fish anymore, that, that they would take care of him. So when Jesus came to... 401k or John, James and John and said, look, leave the family business. They're not just leaving their incomes. They're leaving their family responsibilities. Now, again, public advisory, Jesus content. I mean, that's tough. I mean, that's real, real to me because I was in a family business in Los Angeles that, that, uh, 
you know, we had been in it for years and years and years, and we had hired people. And, and when Jesus called, called me uh, out of the marketplace and, and into full-time ministry, that, you know what, that was, that was a big decision. I, and, and I think it's even bigger for John's and, John and James because, you know, my parents weren't relying on me to be their retirement. So, I mean, this is a huge call, a huge sacrifice that Jesus is calling these disciples to. Now, kind of the turning point in in thinking about this is that as we continue on this journey, I think there's two questions that we need to continually ask ourselves throughout this journey. The first one is, who is this one who calls? Who is this one who calls? Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus who called Peter, James, John, Tommy, the Monroes, Katie May, you, I? Who is this Jesus? Who do you say he is? For me, I've identified him as my, uh, my Lord and my Savior, as the Son of God. But that doesn't mean that that's what you've identified him as. And if that is true, if you identify Jesus as who he says he was or is, as the Son of God and, and the Messiah, then the second question would be, what does it mean to follow him? I mean, really, if Jesus is God, then what does it mean if he has called you to follow him? For some, it may mean going to Liberia or to Guatemala. For some, it, it might be just staying here in Tallahassee and having an intentional ministry of being the tangible hand of Christ to to be the words of encouragement to those around us. There's no right or wrong answer like holistically for everybody. Our callings are all different as we look through Jesus' story that he doesn't call everyone to leave their businesses or their occupation. He calls some, but not all. But what he does do is call people to to make a decision, determine who he is, and to follow him on how he calls you. And I hope you guys join us for this next 14 weeks. And there's only going to be so much that we can cover on on a Sunday. So I want to encourage you to sign up. We're going to have uh, Mark Growth Groups. Um, where we're going to be going along. And, and in those smaller group settings, you'll be able to get connected and go deeper into the different scripture and uh, what Jesus, you know, Jesus' life. So I, hopefully you'll take the time to sign up for some Mark growth groups and, and really go on this journey and, and be, try to answer those two questions. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, 
we look at your life and, and many times how we view you doesn't line up with who you are. And God, I just pray that you will help us move from the fallacy to the reality. That you will make us brave and fearless. And that we can boldly look in your face and love you for who you really are because you loved us first. And then God, I just pray as you pursue each and every one of us, you don't wait for us, you come to us and you call us that we will be willing to drop our nets, whatever that might be, that we'll be willing to drop our nets and follow you. We love you, Lord.